Welcome to the Reinvent or Die podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to those who want to move forward, committed, laser focused, relentless, simply obsessed with taking control of your own success. So if you find yourself in the funk, that gray space where your daily motivation, passion, relationships aren't where they need to be for bringing out the best in you, then join me on a journey to unleash a new you. I'm your host and founder, Bob Rogers. Every week, I'll be engaging inspiring guests from around the world to share stories of triumph, tragedy, highs, lows, good decisions, bad decisions, peaks, valleys, achievements, failures, everything needed to enable you to believe in a new day, a new tomorrow, a new you. So let's jump in without any delay and launch a great conversation, moving forward and taking massive action. One inch, one step, one idea, just forward. Remember, legacy is everything. Leave one that makes a difference. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a new episode. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Sam Cook to the show. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Bob. Great to be here. Yeah, so let me, let me give the audience a little bit of your history. I think, I think this is going to be a great conversation today. I think the journey you've been on from the time you spent in the military through pivoting to being an entrepreneur and starting several businesses, I think, you know, the stories you're going to share and the insight you're going to share is going to be fantastic and uh, definitely be of value to, uh, to everybody listening. So let me share quick, quick background here for you. And so Sam graduated from West Point in 2000. And before I even go any further, thank you for your service, Sam. There's no better, finer path than, than where you started. That's fantastic. Sam went on to uh, become the, a U.S. Armored Cavalry Officer, where he served as the Regimental Adjutant for Colonel H.R. McMaster in the Battle of Telafar in 2005-2006, and that was cited by President Bush as a turning point in the war. 2007, Sam returned to Iraq as the commander of the Crazy Horse Troop, 1st Squadron, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, where he was cited in the Washington Post and Tom Rick's best-selling book on Iraq, for his novel counterinsurgency strategy to combine tribal negotiations and police trained parole system for a mass surrender. I think that is a fantastic chapter. Hope we can get into a little bit of that piece. When uh, Sam returned from Iraq in 2008, Sam went on to get a master's in Russian and Ukrainian history at New York University's Jordan Center for Slavic Studies. He then went on to teach history at West Point from 2010 to 2013. In 2013, he made a major pivot and uh, down the road of being an entrepreneur and started the James Cook Media Company. And the company is a storytelling and marketing agency that focuses on growing uh, them brand of authors and experts, certainly around the world. And I know in 2019, you founded the Sanity Desk, which is a full stack software solution for experts and small service businesses to launch and manage their business on businesses online. So you have, uh, you have quite a, a track record of uh, accomplishments, my friend. Well, it, it briefs well, as we used to say in the army, uh, <laughs> it briefs well. So uh, let's see if I can uh, add some 
some uh, insights or value for your audience. So. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So what I thought we'd do is I like starting before we kind of get into the meat of the journey and kind of sharing kind of where you've been. I think it's, it, it's always good to kind of break the ice a little bit. And I tell you, I love starting with morning routines. I think that's mm -hmm. a, it's a hot topic out there. A lot of folks cover, and I think it's really important for, you know, those things that people do to kind of kick off their day, you know, for success, right? Geared for success. So I'm curious, you obviously live a busy life. You got lots of things going on, team you're leading, a business you're leading. What, uh, what gets you going in the morning? What is that routine that cranks your engine? Well, Bob, one of the, uh, I do have to plead guilty of being a night owl, first of all. Um, I have never been a early to bed, early to rise person. And um, one of the reasons for that, I believe, is uh, my dad was the same way. And, and I, I just, uh, I think I habitually or emulated uh, the way he was and would, would stay up late. But I will say that I, I do admire the morning routine crowd. And I, I do say that I aspire to be uh, part of it in, in a better way. Um, and, 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 and this is also a fascinating question to me to, to hear as, you know, different experts ask for this. Right. Yeah. But the one thing that helps me the most in the morning, uh, which goes all the way back to the military days for someone who wasn't a morning person was physical fitness. In the morning. And that to me is, um, I typically find that I love to go for a run, uh, in the morning before, um, any anything else has been done this is when i am at my best and most productive right now i'm in austin texas and my team is is in ukraine so they're eight hours ahead so my nights are kind of strange you know right. talking to people as they're getting getting started for work but but when i'm in ukraine with my team doing my best work a run first thing in the morning um and i used to do runs with podcasts buzzing in my ears but now i do runs uh by myself, nothing in the ear. And, um, you know, really just, I call it a board meeting with myself. And, and I've found that, uh, some of my best business ideas, uh, working through personal problems, working through uh, business partner problems, relationship problems, whatever it is, it always seems to happen when I go for a run. So at my most productive in my element, you know, uh, the run in the morning is the one thing that, that I think sets me up for success. And it's ironic because in the army, I always used to get used to view getting up and going for a run as the, the, the haze or the, the, the tough thing to do every morning. Yeah. Um, and, and but I revert to that form now uh, when I want to be my most productive is, is that morning run. I love it. That is fantastic. And I tell you, I like how you said having a board meeting with yourself I don't think I know too many people who don't listen to something. And I think you, you could be, you could be onto something out. I'll tell you real quick. It's sort of funny. So my wife, before I launched and, and ran a couple of days ago, she heard something coming out of my ear and she grabbed my little earbud and she said, what is that? I said, I was listening to a podcast and she's like, but you're going running. I'm like, but I'm learning at the same time. She's like, you can't run to that. You got to listen to music. I'm like, no, that's what gets me going. But I think your perspective is an interesting one. A board meeting with well, yourself. I, I like it. I, I, 
I used to use podcast as, you know, a, a typical type A personality, uh, eyes are bigger, my stomach entrepreneur. I, I, I would use the running as a chance to, uh, to learn while I'm doing it. So I've, I've, I've definitely done that. I don't know if it's just process of getting older or um, there's something about, I, you know, I've never done the meditation thing well. I've, I've yeah. tried it. I, I continue to try it. I'm, I'm trying different techniques. I absolutely adore some people that I've helped as a marketer who, who, who teach and do that and have even made custom meditations for me, which, by the way, have been the best meditations I've, I've ever done. Really? Um, yeah, it, it's a custom meditation. I'm happy to refer you to someone who can help you create your own. She's fantastic. And, and that's the only way meditations ever work for me. But I found that sometimes you have to refresh those custom meditations. They become updated based on your current circumstances. So when I've wanted to make meditation work, a custom meditation, I can refer you to Wanda Novak, who does a great job of it. Wandalicious, I think is her website. Uh, she, that one's great. However, um, I find running by myself with no ear uh, earphones is, yeah. is, is a form of active meditation. And it, and it is a chance for me to think. Um, and, and I used to hate running, even though I did it in the army, I used to hate it. And then in 2013, I worked with Bobby McGee, who's one of the world's great running coaches. And he taught me how to run. And now when I go running, it's, I don't focus on how fast I'm going. I simply focus on, on form and the beauty of this natural movement, which is primal. So I find it's just a great form of active meditation and, and, and it's really kind of transformed my relationship with running, which always used to be a little bit uh, troubled, I would say. I was a cross-country runner, quit. Yeah. Uh, then, then I started running to get into West Point and join the Army and you know, I, I got good at it because you have to be in the army you know, as, a, as an officer, lead your soldiers, but never enjoyed it until I met a running coach who taught me how to re, reorient my relationship with running. I think it's fantastic. I think, I think you could be onto something. Uh, I think you might have just challenged me for tomorrow's run, see if I can go yeah. have a really good conversation with myself and see what I can get out of it. That's fantastic. I love it. Let yeah, think, get, pick pick a pick a strategic issue in your business to to work through and 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 see how it goes. I'll do that. And 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 actually, what I find is sometimes the the issue that needs to present itself to be solved will come to you on the run. So it's not even that you need to have an agenda. It's just uh, ideas seem to spring up. Well, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that challenge on, and I'm going to report back to you later tomorrow on uh, what great problem I solved. So I love. I love it. Fantastic. Hey, let me um, let's slide to kind of where you grew up. I, I know you do a tremendous amount of, of traveling and kind of go back a little bit, if you will, into, I mean, you can call it that, you know, early childhood to prior to getting into the point. What, uh, what was that journey like? And then we'll kind of pick up at West Point and take it, take it from there. Yeah, my, my, um, well, first of all, I love psychology. So, so I am a huge believer that, uh, I work with a psychologist, a psychotherapist actually who we do marketing, my, my media agency, James Cook media does marketing for people. And he, he runs a marketing funnel for people dealing with phobias. Um, and he basically helps people, anyone in the world, his name is Leo Hackle. 
uh, who, who has a phobia, a fear of something, he has a method to help you break that. It's called the paradox intervention method. And Leo was sitting in my workshop one day and he said, you know, basically your entire nervous system is, is formed by the age of six years old which I find fascinating because as a psychotherapist who's been working with people uh, to, to deal with these phobias, typically your neurological wiring, your responses, your fears, your loves, your fetishes, whatever those things are in life come from a period of your life that you barely remember. By um, six years old. Remember. By six years old, right? So, I was born in 1978 in Belfast, Northern Ireland, in the middle of a war zone, um, to uh, an Englishman, my father, who married uh, an American woman, my mother, from Minnesota. And um, some of my earliest memories um, were walking through literally uh, army military patrolled streets in, in Belfast, because uh, the British Army was there, I think about 20,000 soldiers total were, yeah. were, were occupying Belfast, and um, there was a war going on. So I remember carrying my birthday cake uh, through you know, glass-crusted uh, streets to my downtown birthday party at, a, at the only fast food restaurant that would dare to open in Ireland at that time, which was Mr. Wimpy's, because Belfast wouldn't, or Belfast wouldn't attract a McDonald's in a war zone. Yeah. So what, one of, one of my, uh, I was the third of five children. My, my little brother was born, uh, when I was three and a half years old and, and it, as a avid reader, uh, you know, who helps experts and authors and reads a lot. One of the best books I think I've ever read to understand your own psychology as a, as a child is, is called the new birth order, which talks about your place in the family creating um, an identity that's almost as impactful or even maybe even more impactful than your relationship with your parents, especially when you come from a large family. So, you know, for example, my little brother, James, who the company's named after, who passed away in 2013, I, I practically raised James in a, in, a, in a family of five people. I probably spent way more time with him than my parents ever did. Um, and as the third of five children, one of the character traits that is comes out in the book is the oldest typically tends to take a responsible position in the world as an accountant, an officer in the military, a priest, um, a lawyer, you know, people who like rules, right? Yeah. Because the first yeah. child gets the rules laid on and, and they figure out how to adapt to that. <laughs> um, by the time you get down to the third child out of five, parents are kind of tired. And I used to leave when I moved to Baton Rouge as a child, well, first of all, we'd play in the yard for, for just hours and hours. Parents would never bother us because they were just yeah. happy we were out, you know, entertaining ourselves. But I used to leave to go visit my best friend in Baton Rouge, Brian. Brian, And, and sometimes it'd take my parents a day or two to realize I was gone, right? <laughs> so as a, as a middle of five ch child, I got the entrepreneurial bug very early. Um, and, and middle children, by definition, tend to be usually entrepreneurial, and uh, expert negotiators, deal makers. Uh, President Trump's a middle child. Um, uh, not not commenting on the quality or, or lack of quality or whatever of his deals, but you know he loves the deal. Uh, that's his his, his um, forte. Yeah. And I also was a um, uh, 
you know, and I studied and taught diplomatic history at West Point. And, and, you know, if I look at all the things I've done in my life, a lot of it was defined by this kind of archetype or template that your birth order creates uh, in your family. And the youngest child typically uh, is the actor or the salesman uh, because they're the center of attention, right? Their, their whole life is the youngest they get it. And when I read this book, it, it just really helped me understand and reflect on, you know, why my strengths are my strengths and, right. and, you know, to, to not envy your little brother, little, you know, my little brother was, was kind of a functional only youngest child because when there's a gap between my youngest sister and my brother, he was the youngest child for four years. So he had that great ability to sell and he had charisma and really, really good at, um, connecting with people, uh, which typically younger children get because they get the most time with the mother. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there's no hard and fast rules in this. You know, sometimes if there's a big gap between children, you can have what you call a functional youngest, a functional only. I was three and a half years old when my brother was born. So I remember the trauma of him being born and taking <laughs> that, that seat as the youngest, where some people don't remember that. Um, they feel it right, but they don't yeah. remember it consciously. So, so I have, I'm kind of a cross between the youngest and the middle child where I'm good at sales, but I'm also really good at negotiating, deal-making, creativity, entrepreneurship. Um, and a lot of that comes from, you know, where you're born and raised and how siblings organize themselves. And in, in a family of five, we had to be very conscious of organizing ourselves. So how do you, that's interesting. How do you then pivot at the tender age of 18 to go into a military academy? Because I, I, I will tell you, I'm 0 for 2 so far. I've got three kids and uh, uh, one just graduated from A&M. So I've got Aggie. Moldis is an Aggie. Uh, it's number, close. It's yes, close. Yeah. Number two, uh, number two is an Aggie, but not in the core. And, uh, and then my son's a junior in high school. But um, how... I tried to influence them on, you know what? I think you both need to go to a military academy. I guess I failed. I'm not much of a negotiator. <laughs> uh, failed that mission. But uh, yeah, what was it for you growing up in Ireland? How do you pivot and then end up in uh, West Point, New York? Well, again, uh, I'm glad you start with childhood because I really think it all starts there. And I, I yeah. actually, episode zero of my podcast at, at and Story Matters podcast, I, I, I have my uh, manager at the time, Patty, in, in, interview me and we, I interview him on, on our story. So we talk about this in a bit more depth. But, but basically, at, at the age of four years old, during the Falklands War, I think three and a half, four years old, when the Falklands War was going on, yeah. um, my grandfather who was visiting us, a granddad cook, pop cook, we called him, um, he used to shut off his, his hearing aid so that you know, because it was, it was a loud house. Um, so he'd shut off his hearing aid because we had four boys at the time. My sister wasn't born yet and just kind of sit there and zone out. But somehow I managed to get his attention and he called my dad over, who, who'd also gotten very good, my father, at zoning out from little kid noise, and said, hey, Peter, you should, you should pay attention to this one. He's a smart one. And, and what I figured out at the age of three or four years old is if I learn how to talk about current events and the news and history, um, you know, this, this old pop cook paid attention to me. Then my dad started, you know, paying attention to me. And my dad was a history teacher. Um, 
taught history before he, he, he became a theology student at the time. He was getting his PhD in theology, teaching theology, went on to become an, an Episcopal minister uh, where he retired. And, but, you know, he was a historian at heart and, and had grown up studying the, the great, you know, Winston Churchill as, as, yeah. as, you know, I used to live on stories of Churchill, read his five-part book on World War II and gave presentations to my class. So when I moved to America at the age of nine, I'd already become quite an accomplished uh, historian in my own right, just, just, you know, learning from my dad, reading books, get, giving presentations in my class on who's this weird kid from Ireland, what, what the heck is that place, and <laughs> you know, telling stories about Churchill. And um, I just grew up reading a lot of books because that was my way. And again, as, as everyone has a survival mechanism as a child to, yeah. and, and you know, your basic need as a child is to get attention so that you get food, you get love, you get care. And my pathway to that, because we were a very big family four going on five when my sister was born was, you know, I was the one that dad could talk to about history, which is what he was passionate about. And, you know, so I'd always, and, and my parents had this weird pact where, and it's not weird, like I'm criticizing it, but right. this accident of the way we were raised is my dad said, okay, right, we got three boys and then they're very close in age, two years apart each. I'll take the three boys because they can kick a soccer ball, they can have intelligent conversations. And you take the two youngest one, James, my <laughs> little brother and my little sister, so I didn't know my mom, and I, of course I knew her. She was very loving and, and you know, fed us yeah. and did all, all the right things. But I didn't know her nearly as well as I got to know my dad, I sensed. I, I was playing soccer. He was my soccer coach. He would come to my baseball games. My mom would, would go to my sister's softball games, and my little brother's, you know, my dad would, would go to my brother's too because he liked to read books during baseball games. It was very therapeutic for him to sit there, spend time with the, the, the child playing the game and, and just read a book for three hours. But he'd look up when we were batting and when he heard a ball get hit and that was about it. So I learned from example, the power of reading and books and history. So when I figured out in junior year of high school, 1998, that West Point still existed because I'd read about it in so many history books right. and, you know, the, all the Civil War generals that I used to study um, were West Pointers. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, well, you know, it's free. It's out of Louisiana where we'd moved at the age of nine. And I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't have, my parents said, well, there's five of you. None of you are getting any money for college. Go figure it out. Um, and so I said, okay, well, Military Academy is free. Uh, it's probably got a good history program. Um, and... I don't think I was consciously aware of it at the time, but I, I had this sense that if I'm going to study history and I like it, that, you know, let's, let's have a chance to live history. I had no idea what was coming next in terms of, you know, September 11th and, and the wars and all that kind of stuff. But I, I just felt like it, 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 it seemed like at the time peace broken out in our time and it was the end of history. Right. And I thought, well, it, it'd probably be a little bit more adventuresome than regular life. And I, I had no idea really what I was getting into at that age. And, and, and you definitely learned about history. <laughs> yeah, no, past, I, I saw past, history. Past and present and made history. That is yeah, I saw history being made. I wrote history as it was being made as the uh, historian for the 3rd Cavalry Regiment in the Battle of Talafar. I, I saw journalists create the first draft of history. 
Uh, and then, yeah, I, uh, my second tour as a commander, I actually did something worthy of being documented by uh, a journalist at the time. So, yeah, I've seen that process, and I, I understand that um, you know, history, when you look back, looks so glorious and um, rarefied as if it's like some biblical right. text, but it's it's a bit messier in, in the in the moment when it's made, and and even when it's written, the documentation of it. So, so how was it? Um, you know when you then went back to West Point to teach. So you've been, as you said, a voracious reader, student of history at a really young age, younger than anybody that, that I personally have known. And I think that's fantastic, kind of where you got that bug and how you put a saddle on it and rode it. What was it like then? You went, got back, you know, got your master's, turned around and then taught for four years. What was that journey like being in the front of the room, teaching, storytelling? that whole journey? Well, I got, it was, it was the strangest experience that I, 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 I've, I, you could imagine is coming back from Iraq in August of 2008. Yeah. Um, I was being sent back before the unit. The unit was there for another five or six months after I left. And I was not happy about that. I, in fact, I asked my commander if I could stay in command. Right. Um, but I'd, I'd already been in command for 26 months. So I was the longest serving commander in the regiment and, and it was time for me to switch out and uh, give another commander the chance to command in Iraq. Right. And, and we'd, we'd really pacified our area at that point. We'd, you know, the, the, the heavy fighting and, and the um, reconciliation had already passed. Um, so, th so it was actually a good time for me to move on and give someone else that, that privilege of leading, you know, my troop, crazy horse troop, which, right. um, was, was great group of officers and soldiers. But when I went back, I was, I got back on August 8th. Uh, I remember that. And, and it was, um, I think it was August 6th or 8th of 2008 and, and no welcome home that, you know, just like, Hey, you're on this, this flight back the wrong way to send someone back. As I, as I look back at it. And I, I, I go in, I get my stuff out of storage at Fort Hood. I out-process. Um, there's some, you know, hand wave paperwork that says, yeah, you've done this. You've, you've verified that you're, you're, you know, you're mentally sound and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I drove all of my stuff up to, to New York and have a U-Haul in Manhattan unloading. And I, and I sit down in you know, 20, I think 28 years old at the time. I sit down in my apartment. And, and I realized, you know, this was supposed to be a good time. I was making a, a six figures plus salary as, a, as an army officer single. Right. I'd just gotten back from a really stressful time. I'd been working, you know, 20 hour days, seven days a week, no breaks in combat. And I thought everything was being great. And the opposite happened, which was I was depressed. I missed the, the bug or I missed the responsibility, the weight of command, they call it. I missed the, right. um, you know, the, the significance, frankly, the importance right. that you get from being in a position like that. And I remember studying history uh, at New York University at NYU, uh, it, sitting there in my Russian history classes. I had, I don't know, probably nine hours a, a, a week of class that I had to be at, and the rest was just a lot of reading. And I thought to myself, is this all there is to life? Like, really, I cannot, I cannot go from 100 miles an hour to this, yeah. I, I, I should be enjoying the heck out of myself and doing, doing that, but I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So I realized that at that point, two years of grad school ahead of me, 
I was either going to go crazy, uh, you know, uh, in, in a bad way, or I needed to occupy my mind. And what I did was I went out, I applied for my tour guide license. Um, I wanted to go get a job like a, it's not like I needed the money, but I wanted to go give a job giving American history tours with the big onion walking tour company in New York city. And I remember calling the guy, uh, who was hiring and I said, Hey, I'd, I'd love to do this job. I think I'm a great candidate. And he said, I'm sorry, we only hire American PhD students <laughs> or PhD holders. And I said, really? well, I'm getting my master's in world history not American, but world history, but I love Alexander Hamilton. I've, I've read Ron Chernow's book. They said, I was in Iraq as, as an army officer, I, and I think I'd be a good tour guide for your company. And this guy said, no, I'm sorry, only American PhDs. So I hung up the phone. I said, okay, I'm just going to start my own tour company. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to start. And it was really just like I was pissed off at this guy for not hiring me. I was going to start my own company. Absolutely. I went and spent probably five or $10,000 on a website. Uh, paid someone to build it, you know, was going to run my own tours and I launched the website. Nobody's coming to my website. So then I um, launched the website and I realized, well, there's no one coming to the website. That's easy. I'll just figure out how to get people to go to the website. So I went and bought from another guy who sells me a two or $3,000 package. Hey, I'm going to send paid ads to your site. So anyone who's looking for a walking tour in Google, they're going to come to your site and obviously they're going to buy. So I spent a couple thousand dollars and no one's buying. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm either going out of business or I'm gonna figure this business thing out. And what I realized was I had totally screwed up my digital marketing and uh, the beauty, and this is what I still teach in marketing now, 10 years later, the, the, the beauty of the digital age is that everyone can do it now. Everyone, there's no barriers to entry. There, there, yeah. you know, everyone, there's infinite real estate online to build a website. That's the good news. The bad news is no one cares because there's no barrier to entry. Everyone's doing it. There's more choice than ever. Just like your podcast. I mean, how many people have taken a podcasting course and created a podcast? Absolutely. And you have to break through in a way that um, it's hard. It is really hard to break through, get an audience, get a business off the ground online. And now with, you know, 2020, April, going on May 2020, everyone knows what's going on. And this right. time, you know, COVID, 30 million people out of work in America in the last six weeks, what the hell do they do with themselves? And what I, what I realized at that point was, okay, I need to start a business um, or I need to fold because what I'd done is just because completely failed. And ironically, now I build digital marketing for people and I, I have a software that does digital marketing because I was so scarred by that experience of failing in my first marketing project digitally, like not even close, not even like I spent a thousand and got 1000 back. I spent 3000 plus 10,000 for the website and I got $20 back. Like, you know, no, not even like, Hey, this is going to work. It's like, this is not working. So I went out and I got a bunch of clients the old fashioned way where I went and got some distributor agreements. I got some of the big tour companies in New York City to agree to resell my tours and my business launched. And, you know, we got a lot of clients. I got well networked into the industry. And I said, you know what? This is what I was born to do. I am a, an entrepreneur at heart. And 
there were times in the army that I loved it. Um, ironically, I loved it in Iraq because there were no rules and the chaos of Iraq was such that a lot of procedural bureaucratic things that I had no time for, no patience for, no aptitude for didn't matter. Yeah. Whereas when I was an army officer in garrison and at peacetime, uh, it, serving on staffs where those things are important, I, you know, I was not a well-rated, well-respected officer. But when I was a commander, you know, I remember someone running up to me in Fort Hood in 2007, and they'd see me in Iraq as a staff officer in 2005. I was the adjutant for General McMaster. And a General McMaster used to say, Sam, how the hell is it that, you know, and he, he was an assistant for a general officer, General Abizade, and lost the guy's luggage. It was the only job that General McMaster wasn't successful in the Army. He said, sir, how did I pick? He said, Sam, how did I pick the only guy in the Army who's even less organized than me to be my adjutant? And I just looked at him without missing a beat, and I said, sir, poor judge of character. Um, and, and, you know, he, he uh, laughed. And, and, and I think one of the reasons he chose me was he was such an impossible person to work for as a, you know, a brilliant person, a great leader, yeah. combat leader, probably the best of our generation, but so hard to work for. He knew that because I'd known him since I was a lieutenant that I was loyal enough to stick with him through what was a really tough job. Um, but you know, I, I used to have, uh, staff sergeants and staff officers come up to me when I was a commander and they'd say, Hey, we heard your units like really good. They're like the best, the best unit out there in the regiment. What happened? And I said, I, I, I was never a good staff officer, but I guess I'm a, a, a good commander. And, and, and the point was that I realized that the one common denominator for success for me in the army was uncertainty and um, the ability to create something out of nothing to innovate. And when there were scenarios where that was not prize, that was not, you know, that's not how you keep a bureaucracy running on yeah. full cylinders is, is giving people chances to take risks and innovate. I was not happy and not good. So when I hit that entrepreneurial vein, completely by accident or happenstance or chance in the army, I realized I've got 10 years ahead of me to retire in, in yeah. the United States army. You can retire after 20 years on half your pension for the rest of your life. And I realized that if I stay in for the next 10 years and I had three years after graduate school, I had to go teach at West Point. Right. So I, I finished those three years teaching. Um, but if I had to stay in the next seven years, I would be utterly miserable. And from a actuarial standpoint, a financial standpoint, a rational calcula calculating standpoint, it was insane yeah. to get out of the army at, at 2013. But, you know, when I started the tour company, it took off, it, it got really busy. We got a lot of partners and clients. I, I kind of got bored of that industry after a few years. It, it didn't reach my world dominating ideas that I thought I would, I would reach. But I knew that although that wasn't the business I wanted to run the rest of my life, I didn't want to be in New York City tourism the rest of my life, um, that the, the thrill of entrepreneurship was where I wanted to be and, and there was no turning back. So, if, you know, I know that you're reinvent yourself um, is the theme here. Right. 
I, I think in, in life, you, every 10 years, you got to try something new. And uh, after 10 years of being an army officer, I, I, I caught the entrepreneurial bug. And uh, that became my focus for the next 10 years. That is fantastic. That, that is a great story. And just thinking about you teaching for three years and running, hitting that vein and running that business at the same time, that, that is fantastic. So how then, and I love the spirit of, of the reinventing and every 10 years, you know, you really need to take a hard look at starting the clock. So that then transition out of the military after what, like 13 years, right? Yes. What, what was that next giant big leap to where, okay, you would cut the vein you had tasted the spirit of, yeah, being an entrepreneur and negotiating and setting up something that was successful. What was, what was that, those next few chapters after then getting out and how did you go from, from that early, you know, series of moments to kind of where you're at today, continuing to grow, expand, innovate and doing different things? What, what was that journey like? Well, here, here's the thing. I became an entrepreneur in 2008. Uh, I ran a tour company for three years until I handed it off to my team to keep running. I think the Uncle Sam's New York website is still up. It's it's one of my older websites, but oh, that's fantastic. Something still up. Um, but in 2011, I decided I'd found the business that I wanted to use as the way to earn money when I got out of the army, and that business was a marketing agency. Um, and I decided that I was going to do a marketing agency. And my first client was someone who's doing an uh, energy product or something that was selling in stores. It was a physical goods product. Didn't know if it worked or not. Didn't really believe in it, but uh, it was money and the guy was paying me well, but he was a real, just, he was an ass to work for, frankly. And I realized that at the end of that, I said, okay, here's my rule on, on, on my agency. Now I am only ever going to work for people now that I absolutely uh, love what they do would pay for it myself um, and, uh, you know, believe that they're going to have a positive impact on, on their audience. And, and that was just a rule that I, I made up and, and, and it, it really clarified what my agency was all about. And my agency went from, Hey, I'll do anything for anyone to, you know, I'll do anything for anyone for money uh, to, Hey, I'm going to focus on becoming an expert at helping authors, experts, and coaches whose products I would pay for and believe in right. uh, to um, free themselves from all the minutia of what they don't love and allow them to do what they do. Because I grew up, my mother was a French and Spanish teacher, my father, history teacher, then he became a pastor and people like that, who, whose job is to, let's call it shepherd other people through their journey in life, uh, which are teachers, coaches, Yeah. Um, they do not want to do anything but that, and they don't want to do their own marketing. They don't want to do their own, uh, administrative work. They simply want to show up and help people because right. that's what gives them their reward. And when I realized that I said, okay, well, how do I do this? So my first client was, um, my first launch that I ever ran. Um, actually my first client was a company named Tridot, which is still is now multi-million dollar SaaS company in the software space for triathlon. I helped them do their launch. They 10 X their business in, in the, in the year, uh, the 10 X their monthly recurring revenue. Yeah. Um, but then my first big launch was this running coach, Bobby McGee, who I spoke about earlier. And I launched Bobby in, in 
uh, two phases. And, and in, in, a, in a course of a little bit over seven or eight months, I helped Bobby generate from scratch with no online sales, $250,000 in online course revenue for a $300 running course that he created. And um, it was a magical uh, experience because I realized, you know, I, I hired a coach to help me learn how to do the marketing that I needed to do for Bobby to deliver. Bobby paid me like, I think $2,000 plus 3,000 or 30% of his revenue uh, after ad spend, net revenue. And I went out and just worked my ass off for him, made him a lot of money, spent most of the money that he gave me on, you know, doing the marketing, running the team. Right. But I, I got a heck of a learning experience, a heck of a case study. And instead of charging 2000 I started charging people $20,000 plus a percentage of revenue. And, and then, you know, my, my rates have just gone up from, uh, from that right. point. Um, but the really interesting thing about uh, transitioning, and, and, and I know that, you know, you know a lot of people at this stage of life is. Absolutely. You kind of reach this stage where like, hey, I can really give back to the next generation. Um, it's, it gets old kind of rowing for a big faceless corporate behemoth or bureaucratic behemoth, whether it's in the military or, or government or, uh, corporate, and you just don't see the meaning or the impact that you want to have in life anymore. And then you have this thing that I call the golden handcuffs of a salary right. that supports a lifestyle that, that you, and not only you, cause I was single at the time and thank goodness for that, but everyone around you depends on, right? right? So even if you want to get out of the golden handcuffs, you know, and I was in a relationship, I was engaged to, to be married at this point. And one of the big stressors in our relationship was me getting out of the army to the point where I just did not want to stay in the army for the security blanket. And, right. and, and that wasn't the only reason we broke up. There are many reasons, but that was one of the main ones that stressed the relationship was what is my life's work and my life's purpose? And is it going to conflict with, um, you know, this family journey that I was about to embark on? And for, for a number of reasons I won't go into, I decided to, to get out of that relationship. Yeah. Um, but the other, you know, the other big thing that happened during that period, you know, is I, I broke it off with my fiance a month later, my brother James passed away. And then at the time I was getting out of the army and I was, I was under this administrative uh, investigation for like failing to show up for a, um, a urinalysis that the army likes to run to see if you're on drugs because I was out of town working on a job hunting. Uh, and it wasn't even job hunting. It was, it was a client, you know, client contract that, you know, I needed to transition out of the army, make sure I had an income when I got out. And it just turned into this whole thing where um, they were just, you know, I came back, took the drug test past that. I, I came back and, but it, it was just this weird thing where even though I'd made the decision to get out of the army, I was getting investigated and felt like I was uh, getting booted out, even though I wanted out. Right. And, and, and then there were some temptations to stay in the army uh, General Cohn, the head of TRADOC at the time, wanted me to come work in his think tank to talk about future warfare and help think through that problem for the Army. I was getting offered to come uh, write the history of Iraq as part of a, uh, a, a reserve officer group that was going to be formed to write the history of Iraq. And there were just a lot of things that were coming up. And 
I was mourning the loss of my army identity, which is a huge, right. you know, it's like leaving a cult. Um, you know, as soon as you're out there, you know, some people are not that happy that you're leaving anymore. So you're no longer part of the in crowd. Right. Um, uh, some people were telling me how jealous they were that I was getting out. Other people were like, Oh, you're, why are you getting out? That's like, <laughs> you're leaving us. Um, I was mourning the loss of relationship and not, not that relationship. Cause I, I'm glad that I did get out of it as painful as it was for both of us. It was the yeah. right thing for both of us. Uh, and then I was mourning the loss of my brother, all of that while I'm getting out running an agency. And, and one of the things I'll tell you is you're never actually really in business until you know, there's, there's an old adage by Gary Vaynerchuk, don't quit your day job too soon right. because yeah. really, it's really gay, great to get something up and running. Yeah. But there's also something, there's the corollary to that, which is if you don't quit your day job, you'll never really be in business because I didn't realize until I had nothing else to support me that um, I think I made more progress in four weeks or four months of not having a day job than I did in four years of having a salary that I could count on as a buffer against all the mistakes I was making in business. And when you lose that, you know, you, you land on the beach, you burn the boats, you know, it's like landing in Normandy or some battlefield. There's something about that. I mean, I learned more about combat and military history and human nature in, you know, a month in Iraq than I ever learned in 10 years getting ready, you know, getting ready for combat. You know, it was just, there's something about the fire of no going back entrepreneurship where you really learn something quickly. Let me um, ask you, let me ask you, and that's, that's a great, a great point. <clears throat> somebody who's in, somebody who's in that same spot today, you know, and, and to your point, I think, you know, it's not just because of uh, call it current events and you know, people are really sitting back and reflecting on what they should be doing. Are they doing it? Do something else. I think there's a lot of reflection going on right now, but somebody who's in that spot, how, what advice would you give them to burn the boat, burn half of it, leave half of it intact? How do you encourage that person who has responsibilities? Everybody does, right? But how do you get them to move just one more step to where, listen, if you don't move off the spot, forget it, you're going to be in the same, same scenario you're in today, next year, next month, forever. What, what kind of advice would you give that person to get them to move forward? Enough to build momentum. Well, First of all, don't do what I did. I, I, um, I was a bit extreme. You know, I, 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 I don't recommend that necessarily, especially no. in this scenario. Um, I was single, so I could. Right. Um, when you're feeding a family, like, you know, my brother has six children. Um, that's a whole different calculation, right? Yeah. And when you have responsibilities that you've, that you've signed up for, um, the risk tolerance is different, right? right. But... I've coached entrepreneurs in this scenario. In fact, I'll give you an example. Annika Rosenthal uh, came to me um, right before her, right after her 49th birthday. She came to me and said, hey, Sam, uh, I'll never forget. She said, hey, I, I promised myself and my husband I was going to quit my day job at 50 
and run my own business. And I know exactly what I want to do. She came to me as a coach and she said, well, here's how I'm going to do it. And I said, well, have you ever considered this way? And um, she had not. And we had a very, very valuable call where I was coaching her on this exact process of quitting your day job. And um, she said to me, you know what? That is great. And I see the value of what you said. It's changed my whole perspective on what, what I could and will do. So therefore, um, I'm going to invest in your workshop mm -hmm. to uh, help me build my marketing out. Um, and, and I will quit my day job by the time I'm 50. And, and, and she saw that you know, spending $8,000 for a six-day workshop or six, $7,000 for a six-day workshop to help her build out her funnel was the maximum amount of risk that she could take where it was so painful that if she did nothing with it, she'd be in trouble with her husband and kicking herself. But it wasn't so much money that if it didn't work out that she was putting her, her family, you know, in the poorhouse. Um, and she had some savings and she came up with that that program, but, and, and I, in my podcast, I have this thing called the mentor series where I, I interview the, the 10 most influential people in my life to get me to the point where I am right now, military, music, things like this. And, and I would say that, and you're contributing to this by, with this podcast and, you know, is find a mentor and, and find a coach and, and a coach is different from a mentor. Mentors are great because they're the kind of people who give you advice. Um, you know, there's this wonderful thing about relationships, you know, romantic relationships. It's hard to maintain more than one at a time. Some people do, but it's a lot of emotional energy. There's a lot of tends to be jealousy involved in other things. It makes it's that hard. Yeah. Uh, friends are less intense than romantic relationships, but there are only a certain amount of friends that you can afford to be there for and keep up with. Uh, or else you're not being a great friend to that person. And I've just reconnected with some old friends of mine and just calling them during this time and, and talking to them. Family, you kind of stuck with them. You can't choose them. They're there. Uh, it can be the best and the worst thing in the world, depending on the dynamics of the family. Um, but mentors are great because you, you can choose your mentors and a great mentor who's worth having will never get upset when you don't call them they'll never get jealous of other mentors and they're always there for you because they genuinely just like kind of paying it forward, giving back right. that yeah. advice that they got to get them there. And, and, and those are great mentors. But I would also say find a coach that is different than a mentor because you typically usually pay a coach or a consultant or a trainer or whatever you want to call it. Who's going to help you with that transition to help you lay the tracks down and has done it themselves and has helped other people do it. So Veronica, the beautiful thing was she quit her day job before her 50th birthday. I ended up having a dinner with her right after that when she came out for some more filming with my team. She ended up doing a full filming with us and did a, another funnel with us. And, and now I pay her to do some consulting for my, my software company. And she has a bunch of clients that she coaches. So um, she did it the right way where she had responsibilities, but she had a plan. 
and she took enough risk to where, you know, I, I love when people are like, oh, I'll go buy a course for $5 or $20 or even a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. And the amount is, is not enough that if it doesn't work, their wife's going to be all over them. And it's also not providing enough one-on-one -on -one help. And this is where I think a lot of digital marketing falls short is, or digital training falls short is that one-on-one -on -one accountability and someone who can help you see the, 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 the things around the corner that no course can teach you because they have pattern recognition they can see and, and call something for what it is. I mean, look, I just raised money for my tech startup and I've never raised money for, you know what I did? I hired a mentor. I hired a coach. I paid him and he helped me. He's an angel investor with 140 angel investments in the past. He's a lawyer and every step of the way is like, Hey, this guy's full of it. This guy's legit. That term sheet. Don't take that term. I mean, the whole way I shortcutted the process. I beat the odds. I raised money. Even during the COVID downturn, I raised money, kept raising money. I'm still raising money because I found a coach and I paid him. And I never, ever would have raised money for my tech startup without paying someone to do it. Man, that is a, that is a fantastic blueprint for success. And, and I think you're right. I think too many people j just think you can, I don't know, slide over, hop in the saddle, make the cut quickly. But, you know, you need a strategy. You need a strategy. You need a plan. And I think, like you just said, you need the right people around you, supporting you, taking that learning curve and shortening that as much as possible to where you can get momentum cranked up quicker and more success out of the gate. I love the spirit of that. Let me ask you real quick, just a couple more questions. You know, storytelling. I know storytelling is foundationally a part of the kind of the philosophy of your company and how important that is to being successful as an entrepreneur. Can you share a little bit about, I mean, what, what is storytelling as, as you guys, you know, engage on the spirit of that approach and the importance of it on any entrepreneur, you know, putting together the right, the right business and the right plans. What's, what's the art of storytelling? Fascinated by it. Well, First of all, I, I teach, I have an online masterclass. Uh, we've had over 100,000 people sign up for it. It's a free mini course called the Story Matters mini course. We have a, um, and I, so I've been teaching this to entrepreneurs for a long time. And I came up with the storytelling framework to describe how I had take, taken at the time four and now six different expert funnels from zero to seven figures mm -hmm. in a relatively short period of time using video marketing. Cause I, I'd learned, um, when I wanted to learn how to do videos, what did I do? I hired Ryan Spanger of dream engine. Who's a documentary filmmaker who specializes in marketing and had a marketing agency. And I said, teach me how to do this. I have four clients. I'm going to do a documentary film on every client. I'm going to fly you from Australia to America. We're going to drive across the country and interview people and produce four videos. So we did that. So I became, in the space of a month, a documentary filmmaker. And, but I'd never kind of decoded and thought through why I was doing why it was successful. And, and it wasn't until I was working for a client, Peter Sage, who's a personal development coach who's focused on business coaching. 
was teaching at the Sage Business School in October of 2016. He said, Sam, you know, you helped me fill this room. Got a thousand people online and, you know, 700 people in the room. And, and I'd like you to get up. You're one of the only guest speakers. I'd like you to get up in this three-day conference and just give me an hour on, on marketing. I was trying to figure out, man, my first big public talk, what the heck am I going to talk about? And when I had to distill down and reflect on, you know, Peter, I'd started with him in March. It was October. We were crossing a million dollars in revenue, ended up doing 1.8 million in revenue for him in 10 months. And I, I was thinking, man, what did we do right? And what's the common thread that we've done right over, you know, for the past five years uh, at the time, helping people do their, their marketing. And what I realized was with Peter, we were great at filmmaking and storytelling, but our first funnel with him was, was a bust. And it was a bust because Peter was a great storyteller and he had a great story about himself and his, his background with Tony Robbins and he was coach and, and all these great stories. And we did that and we put it on camera. We used the highest production quality. We used the best filming, the best lighting, makeup artists, music, you name it, we did it. And it was amazing. And it didn't work. All right. And shit, it's not working. And man, we need to do something. So I, I took a new film crew, bad cameras, bad lighting, but man, we need to do something quickly. And I sat down and I, I did a video with Peter, which is, is part of this online masterclass that I teach, the, the Story Matters mini course. And the first um, lesson in that mini course, I show the video that turned it around for Peter. And the thing that Peter did in, in, in um, or sorry, the fourth lesson is I showed him the video that turned around for Peter. Yeah. The thing that Peter did really, really well, and I helped him do it intuitively, not knowing what I was doing at the time, but just kind of feeling into it was, we flipped it away from a story about Peter to a story about his customer, right? And the big realization from this, I'm thinking about how do I communicate what storytelling is and how to, how to tell it, as I broke storytelling out into three parts. And part one is, first of all, even though we're in the digital age, it's never been easier to get your message out there. It's never been harder to get people to listen or to care. So therefore, with all the noise that's out there on Facebook and Instagram and everything else, now more than ever, story is, the ancient art of storytelling is, is, is more important than ever to cut through the noise and connect with people and grab their attention. Because if it doesn't have a story, that grabs their attention. That's, this is why podcasts are so popular is it's just a, it's an hour of storytelling. And, and right. sometimes you have a good right. guest and, and you have interviews who are skilled at pulling stories out of people and you have interviews or not. Right. And the ones that right. go and take off and, and thrive are the ones where story, great stories are told. So the same thing happens in video, but it's even more fragmented in video because podcasts, you tend to get a lot of people listening for a long time compared to videos. Yeah. You got to tell a great story. You got to tell a great story visually. You got to tell a great story with the spoken word and, and you got to tell a great story um, auditorily. It has to sound good. You have to have good music and everything baked together. And it all needs to make sense. The, 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 the visual storytelling medium is the hardest one because of that. It, it, everything's got to work together. If you have weird images on the screen, people are, are going to look away. If the music's too loud or not good music or there's no music, they may not listen. Uh, if the sound is bad, they may not listen or watch, right? So 
Um, but but that's point number one is it's never been harder to get your message, never been easier to get your message out there, but because it's never been easier, it's never been harder to get people listening to care. So therefore, story is everything. Ironically, now more than ever, it's everything. And that is only going to get more and more trapped. So that's the first principle. The second principle on storytelling is everyone, every story has what? They have a hero, okay, or a heroine. Uh, who is the hero of your story? And this is the big mistake that everyone makes, which is it is not you, okay? When you are running a business, nobody, I hate to say it, gives a damn about your story. Now, now you, you're gonna, some, there's gonna be some pushback in your audience to say, well, you know, they do. They do wanna know who they're buying through. Yes, they do wanna know who you are. They do wanna know your story, but they only care about your story until they know that you care about their story, right? So the hero of the story as a business owner has to be your customer and to tell a story that makes sense to their customer, you have to make some choices about who your real customer is. And most people, the biggest mistake people make is if you speak to everybody, you speak to nobody. And if you do not find out who your real customer is and really talk to them, mine is experts and authors and all of my ads, I'm talking to experts and authors and coaches. And you know what? I get other business owners who aren't experts and authors and coaches, yeah. but deep down, they just want to be experts and authors and they're just using the expert and author platform to grow their business. They have to buy into this idea that story is the most important thing in, in their business and their market. So understanding and defining who your ideal customer is. And I'm not saying you can't have more than one. In fact, right. the big frustration I always had with software out there, the reason I built sanity desk is I have more than one ideal customer. I have the experts and authors is one bucket. I have the, other business owners who sell services, products, uh, uh, and even software who are also need storytelling, but they need it in a different way because they're not just selling themselves, they're selling a product or service or software. I have marketing managers who work for business owners who have a complicated relationship with their business owner, need to promote the brand and the business, may love their business owner, may hate their business owner. How do they approach storytelling, right? And then finally, I have the marketing agency owners who are like, that's really cool. I want to do that with my clients too. So I need to speak to those four heroes very differently. And every hero has different levels of awareness they have on the journey. I have some people who have no, no website or funnel yet. Okay. I have an, other groups of people who have a website that's not working. I have other people, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, who have a funnel that's working, they need to scale it. So if I have four heroes and three levels of awareness, I now have 12 dimensions to this character. And then the final question I ask people when they come into my funnel is, do you have time or money? You know, what's your budget? You're going to invest one thing or another. Are you going to invest money? You know, I've had people pay me, you know, $50,000 and $5,000 a month plus, you know, 25, 30% of their revenue yeah. because they want to invest the amount of money right away to, to go to the top quickly. Right. You've got the other extreme where people are like, I have, I have no money. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you doing between 10 p.m. and midnight or right. 10 p.m. and 2 a.m.? Okay, you're going to watch some courses. You're going to figure this out on yourself. Here's the system. Here's the software. And we'll give you three coaching calls with that. So that's my kind of extreme of, you know, the gold-plated package versus 
you know, $2,000 for a coaching program to help you do it yourself, right? Let me, let me end the session because I think, I think this is going to be episode one of many with us. I think, you know, <laughs> you, you have so much to share in terms of, again, how somebody can become an entrepreneur. But let me ask you this. And I think ending on the storytelling philosophy and approach and principles is a really good one for, for this first episode. And let me ask the question this way. I'm sure because I, I know people just like you do where they think because of their journey, everybody's journey is unique. But I think there's a lot of people out there that have come to the point in they look in the mirror and go, yeah, you know what? I'd, I'd love to be an entrepreneur and I'd love to row for myself. I, I love that visual from earlier. But you know what? I'm 50 and I've been a corporate person for decades and maybe I've done other stuff, but I don't have a story. What's my story? No, I can, you know, turn on, turn on the radio or go on the internet. Oh no, I can see yeah, that person's got a story. That person is even more interesting, but I, I don't have a story. How do you get people to think about, listen, everybody has a story. Everybody's had a journey ups, downs, good decisions, bad decisions, but talking to that person who's sitting there and struggling to really reflect and see that, no, you, you do have one. Talk to that person. What, what, what would you say to them to get them to open their eyes to go, well, you know what? My journey's different than yours and his, but yeah, I do have a story that has value that could help somebody I can do this. I should jump into, you know, helping other people. However. Well, I, I, lo I love that you brought up this point because this, this really leads to the, the third and fourth points. Uh, really the last main point of, of storytelling is yeah. the, the thesis. And, and I, when I do my free masterclass, my ad, first of all, that I put out on the internet, it's, it's a, uh, I have a, a, a 13-minute video ad that I put out on Facebook. It's generated $3 million of revenue for us over four years. Not one sentence in that ad is about, or I mean, there's probably a few things I say, but that ad is, has nothing to do with my story, okay? The way I help entrepreneurs connect with their audience is we say, forget about your story. Let's tell the story of your ideal customer. So as soon as you understand who your ideal customer is, if you tell their story, they care about their story right away. Okay. And I've done this in, I've done hundreds of videos for clients and never do I have the entrepreneur start. Well, a couple times I've let, let them and it's everyone's choice. They can do whatever they want. But my, my advice is always don't tell your story, tell their story. Okay. And when people sign up, from that video for my masterclass, it's free. There's a couple of rules I have for myself. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about our funnel. Um, and I'm not going to talk about our financial results because one of my biggest pet peeves of marketing. Now I do talk about our funnel, how it works, but one of my biggest pet peeves is yeah. uh, look how much money I made online. Right. I, my, my thing is like, 
you, you're teaching that stuff. I hope you're making that amount of money. Why aren't you making more? And you know what? I don't care how much you're making. I care about how much I can make. What's realistic for me? Don't, don't over promise what's right. possible for me. Set realistic expectations. So for me, it is always about people care about you only when they think that you care about them. And if you spend, and, and this is why a lot of people don't put themselves out there as experts is they're like, hey, I don't, look, we all have imposter syndrome. Right. I don't have Tim Ferriss's story because, you know, Tim Ferriss is like this Uber podcasting guy who's, who's done all these kind of things, angel investment. I haven't done the things he's done. So I could sit here and, you know, you could say objectively, wow, Sam has a pretty cool story. But you know what? I look at people and I think I'm an imposter too. We all have that. So first of all, get rid of that. Second of all is, it's not about you anyway. No one actually cares about your story. They care about their own story. And the process of transformation in business starts with, people will pay for your product or service when they believe that you can help them get a better future, okay? People will pay for your product or service. They will invest in you as a coach, as an expert, as a consultant, yeah. as a doctor, whatever when they believe that you can change, literally change the outcome of the story that is their life, okay? And that is the foundation of storytelling that we teach is you need to understand how, first of all, who are you trying to help? Who would you pay help? Who would you love to help if they never paid you any money? Because in business, usually you're gonna be paying to help people for the first part of your business. And if it didn't work and you wake up in the morning, three years later, would you regret helping those people if you never made any money doing that. Yeah. That's the first principle. The second one is, is what is the story, the deep story that they are living, that pain that they are living with that you, if you could just get in there and show them a better way, a different angle, a different street to walk down, that their entire life will change. And so for me, I help people with marketing. And I say, hey man, you know what? If you just learn that it's not all about you, it's not all about your story. You, you can forget that imposter syndrome. It's about who you're trying to help. Make sure that you're working with people that you would pay to help. So that if it doesn't work out, you'll never regret it. And because of that passion, because you're working with the right people, you have a way less chance of failure. Man, that is powerful when people get that around their head. And I've never had someone come back to me that I've helped, whether they've been financially rewarded to the point that they need to be or not, that has regretted investing in that journey. I can sleep well at night over helping those kind of people, right? I don't want to work pe with people who are into get rich quick. I don't right. want to work with people who are into biz ops. I don't want to work with people who don't have something real of value to add to the lives of the people they're trying to help. And I just don't work with those people, right? And yeah, I'm probably leaving a lot of money not marketing to certain people, um, but I don't care because that, so, so for me, if I can, you know, in one episode with you, change someone's entire perspective on storytelling right. and how that's the missing piece that's stopping them from being successful in business or launching business because they're finally going to get out of their own way and not make it all about themselves because it's really not about you. It's about who you're trying to help. Then, and get them off the couch and doing something, making a sensible investment. Don't burn the boats at the beach like I did, right. but a sensible investment that's painful enough where if it doesn't work, you're going to hear about it. You're going to feel it, but you're not going to, you know, put those that love and depend on you out on the, the street. That is, you know, that's worth doing this.
Yeah, no, this, um, this session has been, has been gold. And I'll tell you, your, your approach, you know, your blueprint for kind of what you've done and how foundationally storytelling has been for you all the way back to, you know, your childhood. Go back to, again, you know, being a student of history and storytelling and how that just kind of gained simple traction all the way to the success you're having today. And that perspective of, you know, for those that are out there wanting to jump into the entrepreneurial space and thinking about themselves, to your point, listen, it's not about you. It's about those who you want to help, whatever that niche focus or set of customers are, story is theirs. What is their pain? How do you get after helping them move to a better spot? I think that is, that's gold. And I think it's probably a great place to end for this round. You got to promise me we, uh, we do it again because there's much more to explore on, uh, on what you're doing and the various pieces of, uh, of your entrepreneurial journey. You got to promise you come back for, for some follow-up sessions. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, Bob, I appreciate your approach. I, I know exactly where you are. I've, I've helped people like you for the last nine years in terms of just, just you know, I believe storytellers will inherit the earth. And I, I think right now, the future of this country and the world is going to be the stories that people tell themselves about what happened when the world went to hell in 2020 in, in terms of, you know, I lost my job, therefore, is it going to be a good story or a bad story, right? right? And and we all have the choice, you know, a month ago when my lead investor that I was about to get into my company pulled out of our funding round because of the COVID crisis, um, I had to choose what that meant, right? I had to tell that story around that and, and manage to get him back on board, get him to help me rally some other people and, and close the gap. Um, you know, life is just a continual a uh, series of stories that you tell yourself and everything that happens to you, you cannot change any of it. It's gone. It's that ship has sailed, but you can change the story. You tell yourself and other people about what just happened mm. and the meaning that you assign to what's happened to you is, is, is the secret. We know there's a, there's a reason you are very successful and uh, yeah, man, you're, you're outlook in, everything you just said, if even one person in the audience can hear that, I think the last hour we spent together will check the box. I mean, absolutely well worth it. It's fantastic. Let me ask you, how can, how can the audience best get a hold of you? I think there's lots of, lots of folks who are going to be listening to this going, wow, he's, he's got the seeds that I need to plant. How can I reach out to them? How, how can they do that the best, easiest way? Well, Bob, I'll make it easy for your audience. I'm, I'm going to give you a link uh, where they can go. It's going to be jamescookmedia.com uh, forward slash reinvent. And uh, just a special link for your audience to go watch the video where I talk about storytelling. And that one short video is, uh, is you know, generated over a million dollars in revenue for me. And it, it is uh, an ad that we run on Facebook that gets people from never hearing or knowing about us 
through a story-based video to, uh, you know, taking our free course. Some of them pay for our coaching. Some of them pay us a lot of money to do their funnels for them. And it's a great example of understanding. I talk about in this mini course after the free video, that's like, I don't know, 10, 10 minutes or so yeah. you can sign up for a, about a three hour mini course where I explain the theory and the technical aspects of storytelling that, that I take all of my students through and over a hundred thousand people have taken this course or signed up for it. And, and um, so I think that'd be really beneficial to anyone. And if you want to work with us, we're going to explain to you in those videos exactly how you can work with us. Uh, you know, just by consuming our free content all the way up through our, our highest level programs. Well, that's fantastic. I am quite sure new students are coming your way and uh, I am quite positive I'm going to be one of them. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> I've, I've, learned, I've learned a ton myself. This has been, been really great, Sam. So I tell you what, um, really, really appreciate your time today. I know uh, you're a busy guy and we're all trying to navigate through this current madness of ours and I think we're probably getting ready to enter a new norm. I'm not quite sure what that's going to be like, but I'm sure like me, I am ready to bust out of this and get a little more physically social again. It's, it's getting old. <laughs> well, uh, you know, again, the, uh, this, uh, the, you know, it's funny men plan and God's laugh, right? You know, uh, <laughs> we, we, we have the, the best laid plans in life and then, and then, well the, the heavens or whatever whatever your your framework is for the universe uh has has the last laugh right and and all we have to do right now is figure out what is this moment uh teaching me and allowing me to do absolutely. with it and i think that's yeah. absolutely and so we'll we'll do a full stop there and i wish you continued success in all of your endeavors and as you kind of shared over the last hour you're launching getting ready to launch a new business you got lots going on so you got to come back definitely have you back because there's so much more to explore but i think the last hour has been absolute gold for the audience and uh, i'm quite sure your your students student base it's it's going to grow so keep making a difference sam and everything you do and keep keep swinging for the for the fence thanks a lot bob right, and, no. and thanks to your audience for uh, spending time with us. I, I know how precious everyone's time is and, and the fact that you're you yeah. know, investing in yourself, even though it's free, this podcast is, is your most precious commodity is your time. Uh, yeah, and and spending, spending with you, Bob is, is a great investment. Fantastic. All right, pal. Thanks. We'll see you the next round. All right. Bye. And for my listeners, remember, no retreat, no surrender. Go forward each and every day, striving to become the best version of you. The world is yours. Go take it.